I think there's always sort of that weight and that anxiety. And it's, it's sort of like putting everything in perspective, like getting people, uh, the trust word is something that we use constantly, but like getting everyone around you to trust you and believe in you is a huge part of like managing that anxiety and allowing people to say like, I trust that Garrison is going to do the right thing here. He's going to make the right decision. He's going to handle this appropriately. He's going to give good advice. And that reduces all that anxiety, all that like stuff, because you're just, you're doing the right things. And so that's, that's always where I've, I've built a lot of my, my day-to-day interactions is like, what's best for this person? Like, where, where are we? What do we need to do? How do we need to support this person? And if you start from that standpoint, then a lot of the other decisions get really easy. Welcome to the Find the Gap podcast, where we're going to focus on the health and well-being of the support personnel and practitioners within high-performance sport. This will act as a platform for practitioners to share their own insights and experiences that have helped them to progress to where they are today, as well as being a safe environment which they can touch upon moments of vulnerability and other emotional battles that they've had to overcome in order to be successful. My name is Sam, and thanks for joining me on Find the Gap podcast. This podcast episode is brought to you by Team Builder. Team Builder is a software that performance coaches all around the world are using to build programs, distribute workouts, and track athlete progress. It is the perfect fit for professional and academy teams, sports physios, gym owners, schools, and universities. The platform includes multiple max tracking methods, 16 plus reports, evaluation testing, and goal setting features. Coaches also have the access to consultation with Team Builder's in-house sports scientists to help manage and analyze data. Head to teambuilder.com and sign up for the promo code FTG to start your 30-day free trial. So on today's podcast, I'm talking to Garrison Draper. Garrison is the High Performance Director at Inter Miami FC and has been associated with many different MLS clubs throughout his time and throughout his career. Uh, I was referred to Garrison via a few other podcast members or guys who came on the podcast, so I'm very excited to have a chat with him. Um, and talk about his journey through the ranks in the MLS, through his experience as a leader, and also uh, through his experiences in COVID. So without any further ado, here is the episode with Garrison. Uh, All right, cool. So Garrison, mate, thank you very much for jumping on this afternoon. Uh, What's the latest up there in Miami? Oh, well, I am certainly getting used to, I know you guys in Australia are used to this, but um, being a Northern American, I am getting used to sun during February, um, which is Lovely. a nice change. Lovely. Yeah, good. This must be much different from where's uh, where's home for you. So over the past nine seasons, I've been based in Philadelphia. Oh, uh, much different. The Philadelphia Union. Um, but I am a Wisconsiner um by raising so i lived about an hour and a half north of chicago pretty much from zero to 18 years old and was used to negative 24 degrees fahrenheit in the winter and 100 degrees in the fahrenheit in the summer i never understood how places like chicago or um especially down on the uh, east coast how it can vary so much from negative fahrenheit all out to 100 fahrenheit in a you know a few seasons that's insane like australia will get to 100 fahrenheit but it won't get anywhere below 32 fahrenheit yeah and you you bounce around the united states and each one's just a little bit different so i've lived in seattle and it was 
it was wonderful. I I adored it. But what each of the cities does is they sort of like lull you into um lull you into sort of like loving it. So in mm -hmm. Chicago, from about May until November, it's the most beautiful city in the country. Mm -hmm. Like fall in love. It's wonderful. There's great culture, but then November, December hits and it starts going into the negative Fahrenheit's and you're miserable. It's windy. You get the lake effect snow. Same sort of thing when I lived in Seattle. It, from May to October in Seattle, it is sunny and 75 every day. It's actually one of the driest cities in the United States during oh that time period. Yeah. But then from October to May, it is like 40 degrees. You don't see the sun. And it's just like a mist 24 yeah, seconds. Wow. Jeez crazy like every single state and every single city is just so different over there it's insane yeah. um mate to get us rolling on the pod uh before we talk more about chicago we'll be here for days um would you just mind giving me a bit of a rundown on yourself um educational background any kind of um uh experiences you want to share that's led to where you are today yeah no i've i've taken a really windy <laughs> process to get to where i am today um so I started my undergraduate at a school called Valparaiso University, and it, I was playing soccer there for the, the soccer team. It was a, a very, a decently high level team um, and was really loving my education, but didn't find that my, my focus on exercise science was exactly what I wanted. So I ended up transferring to a school called East Stroudsburg University, which is up in Northeast Pennsylvania, um, which sort of has like a circle back effect later in my career. Um, and I, I really loved it. I loved being up in the mountains. I loved the education I received at East Stroudsburg. They do a really wonderful job on the exercise physiology standpoint, but I actually wanted to go more into the medical field. I wanted to work in like cardiac rehab and, and potentially become a doctor. Um, so one of the great experiences I got in East Stroudsburg was getting to watch an open heart surgery. And so I, I show up, I'm in the OR, I'm scrubbed in, I'm looking over the surgeon's back and they they take out a buzzsaw like you can buy at any like Home Depot and I passed out. And I was like, oh, like this is not for me. Like this is a, this is scary. This is real. Um, so I really quickly had to make sort of a change in my process and decide like maybe the medical world isn't the place for me, but I'm a high level athlete. Um, I love sort of tracking my own training, maybe exercise science and like the sports science world is what makes sense for me. So I, I dove straight in and I was really lucky. I got to go to the Chicago fire and work as an intern um, under Tony Zhao, who's now at New York Red Bull. And he sort of just immersed me and said, here, here's, here's heart rate monitors, like go to town, see what you can learn, see what you can think about, what do you see? And he literally just locked me in a little office and said, tell me what you're learning. Um, it was, so it was a really cool experience. Then I ended up going out to Seattle, um, literally two days after I walked across the straight stage for my undergraduate graduation, my dad and I drove to Seattle where I worked with Dave Tenney and Chad Kalarsik, um, and got my first experience working with GPS, working with heart rate, working with heart rate variability. Um, and it, it was the first time I really sort of understood the difference between being a fitness coach or a strength and conditioning coach and a sports scientist. And I realized really quickly, I love the data side. I love talking about how the data sort of lines up with what we're seeing with our eyes. Mm. So that's when I became a true sports scientist. 
yeah, during not- that time, I was also a, sort of approaching my my master's program at Edith Cowan in Perth, Australia, which was a great supplement to my my practical experiences in the field. Um, and then a couple of years later, I I decided because I'm a glutton for punishment that a PhD was a great idea while I was working full time um, at the Philadelphia Union. And so over the past six years, I've been doing my PhD at Teesside University under Matt Wright, um, Greg Atkinson, Paul Chesterton, a really great group, and I've taken a lot away. And so my work is actually on the different environmental factors that MLS players incur. So all the travel, having to fly from Philadelphia to LA, the altitude when you go to Salt Lake City or Denver, which is at 1600 meters, Mm. um, and the the different thermal um, contacts. So playing in Boston in February when it could be negative 14 degrees Fahrenheit, all the way to playing in my new home city of Miami, um, playing there in the summer where it could be 95 degrees Fahrenheit with a hundred percent humidity. So mm. it, it, I think those contexts are really interesting and they're undervalued in terms of the load that it actually places on the athletes. When we expect consistency, when we expect them to perform at their highest every single weekend, I think they're just underrepresented in our load monitoring processes. hundred percent, hundred percent. And do you, um, going in just going to that slightly are you considering the COVID lockdowns as part of your study um not directly but one of the really sort of fortunate things that happened and it's part of one of the studies that I'm presenting is um there were restrictions so the league had to sort of change the way that it it groups teams that it travels and so we ended up getting really refined and structured processes Mm-hmm. where instead of like separate teams out and talk about all right these teams only had to travel so far while these other teams had to travel double or triple the distances because of the regional um competition that they were in yeah um, so lining, lining up the tests and stuff there. before training taking time yeah. and that adds load yeah for sure for sure yeah so i didn't talk about covid directly but it was sort of like the best thing that happened to my research because i got a little more control over yeah. my population a hundred percent. Yeah, good. Give you a bit of time on it. Um, talking about uh, taking a few steps back on what you talked about with the cardiac rehabilitation, and then you um had that moment in the uh in the in the um surgery room. What was it? Because if your mind is set on going one path, you think, okay, I'm going to go be a cardiac. I'm going to be involved in cardiac rehabilitation, and then it just one moment think okay this is not for me and then all that preparation all that build to go one way sets you off on another path what's that can you describe that kind of feeling like realization that i'm not going this way i'm going to divert and go this way um i think being an athlete it sort of was like you sort of take it and you just move on to the next thing i think that was one of the best things about being an athlete and going through school in general is you you handle failure really well Mm -hmm. i mean there's very few athletes in the world that are undefeated for their entire life. I, I don't know that I know of any. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's something that you learn how to deal with really quickly. Um, and I, I think what I realized really quickly was I could take something that's currently a hobby for me, tracking my training, um, strength and conditioning, staying fit were all things that I really enjoyed doing as part of my process of being an athlete and turn it into something that I do for the rest of my life. So it, there wasn't like that, like demoralizing, like I'm a failure feeling. It was, 
I've got a lot of really good knowledge. I'm really excited about physiology. I really love anatomy. How can I apply this next? Mm -hmm. And then like the aha moment was like, we had a strength and conditioning coach at the school and I loved hanging out with him just as much as I did hanging out with any of my other like clinical rotation um, instructors. So Mm -hmm. I bug him for the next couple of weeks. And so that's where it sort of progressed. Yeah, nice. And then you mentioned as well about your um, initial experience with the, uh, I've forgotten what his name is, what you mentioned, but you're um, the guy who now is involved with New York Red Bulls. And you said he uh, gave you freedom for the heart rate monitors, just like, hey, here's the devices, go learn when you can. Given that freedom in a high performance setting, do you feel like that was something that you just jumped upon? Or was that something you initially like, oh, where do I go with this? Yeah, um, it was sort of my second experience being in a a professional sporting environment. And so like one of the big benefits was I was able to sort of understand the flow and what it looks like every single day. Um, But it was the first time I was ever given ownership of an actual process or or something that actually impacted the team on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. And it, it was really strange. Like it was one where I don't think I was mentally prepared for the the ownership and for the the sort of challenges you would get having like a process that's yours. But I, I think one of the, the most like impressive things, and it took me years to realize it was that I, I got really good at it and I was very, I was able to get very competent and very comfortable talking about it and like setting up my own personal, like, um, experiments inside of the inside of the actual high performance environment and it it sort of trickled down to my own leadership style where sometimes you just shove like you just shove them off off the cliff and Mm -hmm. see who actually comes back up to the surface i actually saw a funny video on the internet and i sent it to tony because um it made me think of um there's like a little girl who's learning how to swim and one of the last things you do with a little kid when they're learning how to swim is you get them dressed up in all their clothes and a jacket and they lean over the edge and you just shove them in because you you've been training them to sort of come back to the surface, reset, flip over on their back. And it's to see if they've actually like learned that process. And I felt like that's what happened to me was Tony said, all right, here's the tools. Here's my expectations. Go and do it. Mm. And it took a month, but eventually he was coming into me or the head coach was coming into me and saying, Hey, what did you see today? Mm-hmm. Like, what are you worried about? What are you thinking about? And all of a sudden I was like, oh, I really am like a pro here. Like mm-hmm. people respect my opinion, but unless you take that step back, you don't really get to think about it. So I, I actually have a couple of new staff here in Miami and it's the same thing. It was, they arrived on January 3rd. We started on January 5th. And so it was line them up on the cliff and shove each of them in. Mm-hmm. And they've come up to the surface now and they've created some really cool, innovative things. So big shout out to Sophia and, and Julian who've done a really nice job here. Yeah, for sure. And like your, your role as a director, you need to take that kind of leadership step and, and give those people that kind of sharp and that's your style. Um, what talk to me more, sorry, about your, your leadership style and, and taking it back from where you are now to where you were growing in the industry. How important were those mentors to help you grow as a leader? Yeah, I, I think one of the the big ones for me is Dave Tenney, who I worked with in Seattle, um, and he's just been a mentor for me ever since. So that was 2012, and we still talk weekly, if not more, a couple times a week to this day. Um, and 
one of the things now that really impresses me about him is I was a student. Like I, I was a young kid, like he, he had me and he treated me as a professional while I was there, but now he treats me as a peer mm. and he treats me as a colleague, which is really cool because he could very easily talk to me. Like I'm still a fresh newbie because I am in compared to his experiences. Mm. Um, but he talks to me like a, like someone who has 50 years of experience um doing my job like he's calling me asking questions as much as i'm calling him asking questions which really has inspired me um but the other piece that i really loved about dave tenney um that i'm not good at yet is he knew when to call it quits for the day and it was something that until i had kids myself i never really understood and i still struggle with Mm -hmm. but something i loved about him was at 3 30 every day his goal was to go and pick up his kids from school. Mm-hmm. And so he would pack up the laptop, he would go home. And then when they went down to bed, he might send off some more emails or he might like start up a discussion again to figure out what's going on for the day or who do we need to flag or anything like that. And I really respected that about him was that there was a mm-hmm. great balance. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't just that he had great balance. He also sort of allowed us to have that great balance. It was like, no, let's, let's head home for the day. No, mm-hmm. let's go manage that. Go handle that right now. You can come back to this later. Um, and that was feedback that, again, I'm really bad at taking on myself, but it's something that I really push on my, my own staff um, to the point where um, we've experimented a little bit when I was still in Philadelphia with giving staff members in the middle of the season and the heat of the season, go take four days. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't want to hear from you. I don't want to see you. You're not allowed in the building. Go reconnect with your family for four days in June, in July, when it's busy and it's crazy, we'll survive four days without you. Mm -hmm. And I think that was the big lesson that I took from someone like Dave is like, we can survive not working for four hours and we can restart and get the work done that we need to do. Like our lives are bigger than the high performance environment that we're in. There are times where we are going to be busy and we're going to need to go 14 days in a row, but let's find those moments. Mm, yeah. Like um, what the kind of follows on to my next question um, about, you know, the, your importance or your, what are your, what's your importance of uh, maintaining the mental health of your staff? Cause obviously your role is massively um uh, responsible for the health and well-being of your athletes and unless you're trying to get them well trying to get them available uh, trying to get them to perform but you know the same thing for your staff as well so how, giving them four days in a massively busy period is a huge step but what are the kind of t- tools and techniques do you use to try and maintain their health and and well-being being in a yeah, leadership I, and directing position that you're in it i didn't realize how much of management was sort of like handling these pieces but a a lot of times it's it's just developing trust like when when your staff trust that you are fighting for them each day and fighting for like the bigger picture like it it makes the entire environment better and so like we can have those arguments and we can have the professional discussions of like i disagree with you or i i don't think this is the way to go and there's immediate like oh okay like this argument it's not a breakup like I'm still going to love you the exact same way. I'm going to come up to you and we're going to have a coffee later and it's all good, but we all care. And I I think that's been the biggest learning piece for me is that everyone that's in this, in this industry 
for the most part, cares about the product they're creating and the athletes that they're working with. Mm-hmm. And I, I was very fortunate, but sometimes I, I was sort of like a naivety towards like how unready to be a people manager I was when I got my first performance director job in what would that have been 2015, um, where it was like, the only thing that matters is the product on the field. Mm. And there were a couple of people and um, they know exactly who they are if they ever listen to this, but there are a couple of people I wanted to get rid of immediately without actually getting to know them. It was like the product on the field is not good enough, so they should be gone. But lo and behold, nine years later, they are practitioners that I look at and say they are near the top of their craft because they got things out of athletes that nobody else could. Like that was one of the really fun things about working for the Philadelphia Union was we were constantly trying to leverage our resources and get more out of it than we put in, mm. um, which never happened because we put a lot into it, but we we wrung every ounce of ability out of every athlete we had in the club. And it's because of these little small relationship facts. Players knew that these individuals cared about them. They could walk into the training room at any moment and smile, or this guy could read them and figure out exactly what they needed, whether it be love with a hands-on approach or love psychologically with a, a stupid joke. Or like I always made fun of them because they they like to tell poop jokes. Like if you walked into the Philadelphia Union training room, you could guarantee you were going to hear a poop joke at some point. How good. <laughs> how good i make poop jokes all the time my partner she hates it so i can't imagine it at a professional club <laughs> now it, it the and these guys were masters at it because they could someone could have a 10-month injury and be stuck with them and just not getting to do what they they want to do which is play football mm-hmm. but they walk out loving these individuals because they care so much and they put so much into it and they know that they fight for them which is which is huge mm-hmm. yeah uh, moving on, man. How, what what are some of the biggest pressures involved with your role, and how do you kind of deal with those? Yeah, um, I think there's a heavy weight in ensuring that everyone in my group has a voice and feels like they have a voice, mm-hmm. and making sure that I'm real with everyone. Like I, I think one of my big goals has always been to be completely transparent with my staff and the athletes that I work with and any of this, the other sub staffs that I'm sort of collaborating with. Um, and that's not always been easy for me. I'm a person that doesn't want to disappoint. I always want to be the guy that can say like, yeah, let's do this or let's push it. Um, so actually um, seeing a therapist has been one of the the big moves in my professional career that I think has really made me a better practitioner in mm. general. And I was always like, there was always a stigma around it for me. Um, leading up till uh, I think I started seeing a therapist in 2000, early 2022. And there was always that stigma before then of like, I don't have anything wrong. Like I didn't have a traumatic event. I didn't have a, like, I wasn't getting divorced. I was like, nobody died that was close to me. Why do I need to see a therapist? And it wasn't until the, the Netflix documentary on Formula One, The Drive to Survive, Total Wolf actually comes out and talks about how he sees a therapist mm-hmm. weekly, if not a couple of times a week. And he uses it to practice conversations or discuss difficult things that he knows is coming up, hard conversations, dealing with talking about um, 
a driver and not offering them a new contract. You have that personal relationship with them because you're fighting together. You're trying to go through the season together and win and have a lot of success. Um, and I, that was really inspirational to me. Hmm. So I, I sort of said, like, if this guy's doing it at a high level, imagine how much benefit I can get from it at this level that I'm at. And so that's what my therapy sessions became initially was like, how do I have this conversation? Like, how do I tell a person who's been a practitioner longer than I've been alive? They aren't doing a good enough job. Like, mm -hmm. how do you sort of have that conversation? What do you need to do? Like, how, where do you set it up? Like, those were really great um, speaking points that I got from my therapist. And then it started to evolve. Then it started to be like, let's not talk about work. Let's talk about the family situation. How's your wife doing? Like, mm -hmm. what's the relationship there? And it dove deeper. What's your relationship with your parents? Like, and then we like once she sort of broke down the walls of like, no, I think we need to talk about more than just work today. Um, I it grew me in in a lot of ways where now I can become a lot more vulnerable. Talking about therapy on a on a podcast um is I think a great step, but like it it really opened my eyes to how to approach people and communicate with people and, and treat people in the right way. hundred mm -hmm. percent, man. And thanks for, thanks for sharing that. Um, and it's amazing when you're in those kind of settings, the first thing you go to is stuff that you talk about at work rather than, you know, especially in this industry when it's, it's such a big part of your life uh, where you don't go on and talk about everything back at home or those other things that are giving you, um, you know, other things that are bothering you. But I think it's also very common to say, you know, uh, oh, I haven't got, so-and-so had their parents pass away or at an early age or have had this traumatic event, um, say again, uh, a horrible event, like a, like a shooting experience or something. Like I hadn't I never experienced that. So why am I going to go talk to a therapist? I don't need to. That's such a negative uh, mindset because there's, they don't need that kind of traumatic event to be able to talk to someone. Um, there could be something underlying that you never even thought about, but you're just distracted with aiming for, job a job b looking after athlete looking after client whatever it might be that you never really reflect or self-reflect enough to think okay yeah actually i should be talking about this yeah. um so and there's 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 plenty of people that talk a lot about themselves or the the work they've done um but i found that i i wasn't thinking about my needs enough and that i mm. wasn't thinking about myself like uh, the way i describe my job and sort of like how i treat each of my athletes is I have 120, I have 120 children and my wife always finds it really funny when I tell people this, but like, I look at each one and it's sort of thinking about like, what does this person need today? Like who needs attention? Mm -hmm. Who needs, who needs a little extra love today? And something that really stood out to me, my wife actually sent it to me because, um, she calls me a cactus cause I'm prickly and sometimes a little grumpy. Um, but she said, it was something along the lines of like, take care of your cactus friends, the ones that don't need water all the time, the ones that don't need all the love, they can sort of survive anywhere. And it really resonated with me where sometimes it's like, yeah, I, I do need to make sure that I feel like I'm thriving, but am I really thriving in this situation? And so mm -hmm. taking a sort of check mark every single week and being able to say, how am I feeling? Um, and share it with someone, even if it isn't my wife or my partner, or my best friend, like just having that outlet of here's how I feel right now. What do I need to do to sort of get it back to neutral? Like, 
and manage the the ebbs and flows of a month or a weekly cycle is has been really important in my my own journey. Um, I want to move straight on, mate, to hit you with a, a big one and ask you about um, where you felt the most vulnerable uh, in your time in, as a practitioner. Oh, well, no, 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 don't take it as a practitioner. Just where have you been the most vulnerable, full stop? Yeah. Um, the story that always stands out for me. So at my, my former club, um, we had a really good year and we were in the playoffs and it was still during COVID time. So we were doing testing and um, it was right after Thanksgiving and we did our COVID tests that are coming out of Thanksgiving. I think it was like the, it was the conference finals. So there was that game and then the, the MLS final was the next game. So we were two games away from winning an MLS cup. And I got a couple texts from players in the morning saying, Hey, I, I don't feel good. Like mm-hmm. I'm, I'm feeling really sick and the anxiety starts and you as a practitioner, you as a leader of the, the performance and health department, you're saying, Oh boy, this isn't good. In the time of COVID when someone's texting you saying, Hey, I really don't feel good. And you're really, you're in an environment where you're constantly touching, where you're close together, where you're, you're going out and like, this is your hub. Like these are your people you're thinking, Oh boy, this, Mm -hmm. this could get bad really quick. So I said, okay, come in. We're doing our COVID testing anyways, come in. Um, And only one came back positive. Okay. We're, we're five days out from game day. We're in a good spot. We only have one positive. Let's take our precautions. The next morning we do another COVID test four more come back positive. Hmm. Oh shit. Um, what's going to happen? So now I have to get the league involved and the league is saying, we need to do testing every day. We need to catch these. We can't have people interacting with other teams because it could, it could jeopardize the final. Like it's not just about this game. It's about the next game after this. Okay. Mm-hmm. No problem. So we'll keep doing testing two days before the game. Another eight are out. So we're up to 13 people out mm-hmm. for the biggest match in club history. And when those those eight, because we did a rapid test and then sent a, a test into the lab, when the rapid test come back is I'm come back as positive, I'm walking down the hallway to the head coach, to the sporting director's office to say, we're we're in big trouble here, guys. And mm-hmm. I remember walking down the hallway and it was the first time in my life where I go black and mm-hmm. like I almost pass out and like I could just feel like the weight like the whole stadium laying on top of me and it was just like oh like this this is stressful this mm-hmm. is tough um so that was like the moment I think where I felt anxiety's physical repercussions at like a different level but I I take my role really seriously. And so long story short, like, unfortunately we lost that game. We had Mm. 13 players out with COVID. Nine of them were starters. Like it affected our team at a very, very high level. And unfortunately the results didn't turn away. They almost did, but we were winning in like the 80th minute. Like it was a really Mm, exciting moment. Except in my own brain, I'm thinking there's no way we're going to survive the next game. Like it's going to be more positives and we're probably not going to get those players back 
So like I had that just sort of knowing the league processes, but we still had to fight for this game. Um, but there's constant weight, even in the day-to-day role, mm-hmm. you feel the weight of, of your bosses. They've given you a role. They have believed in you. You need to prove them right. You have the weight of your, of your staff and they're, they're sort of relying on you to relay the right messages, to give the right tone, to talk to the bosses, to advocate for them as practitioners and as people. And you have the weight of the players. And so um, I think there's always sort of that weight and that anxiety. And it's it's sort of like putting everything in perspective, like getting people uh, the trust word is something that we use constantly. But like getting everyone around you to trust you and believe in you is a huge part of like managing that anxiety mm-hmm. and knowing and allowing people to say like, I trust that Garrison is going to do the right thing here. He's going to make the right decision. He's going to handle this appropriately. He's going to give good advice. And that reduces all that anxiety, all that like stuff, because you're just, you're doing the right things. And so that's, that's always where I've, I've built a lot of my, my day-to-day interactions is like, what's best for this person? Like where, where are we, what do we need to do? How do we need to support this person? And if you start from that standpoint, then a lot of the other decisions get really easy. Mm-hmm. So then you don't, you don't have that constant like anxiety of like, oh boy, like what happens here? How do we manage the situation? No, if you start with people as the the center, it, it becomes really easy. And a lot of the other decisions follow right behind it. Mm-hmm. That's a good way to look at it. Keep it with the people in the middle and then work around from there for sure. Yeah what how do you kind of deal with all this weight on your shoulders with your staff with your bosses kind of um bearing down what 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 kind of things do you do to keep yourself mentally well therapy has been a big one um but that's sort of a new a new sort of idea and and practice that i i've really loved um i'm an outdoorsman i think that's that's sort of my safe space which is actually sort of a big challenge here in miami um the outdoors is very different here in Miami than it was in, in Philadelphia or in Wisconsin or in Seattle. Like my safe place I've found is trees. And yeah, more hikes than snow, trees. right? Yeah. So I like here in Miami and everyone's already like come out and said it. Like they didn't sugarcoat it, which I really like about the city. They're like, yeah, we don't have that. Like mm. you can go to the Everglades, but watch out for alligators and snakes. Jeez. Uh, so I won't be going there. Yeah. Um so I have to find it here, but I know my, I, what's really nice is I know my safe space. It's the trees, it's the woods. And so I can sort of like try and find the little spaces that feel like that and feel like home mm-hmm. and my family. And, and so spending time with them, spending time with them in nature is sort of like where we really connect. And uh, what I found with my wife, we got engaged in the woods. Nice. All of our, our big decisions have been made in the woods. So like we're woods people. Mm-hmm. And so it, it's a place where I feel really comfortable talking and sharing. And so I, I tend to find those when I, when I do have stress. Yeah. It's crazy. Like, I don't know who was talking about it on the podcast, but we, people link themselves to like the group blue, green or white people thing. It is. And it's like, it's a concept of you get attracted to like forest, you get attracted to water, you get attracted to snow. Uh, whatever it might be and, and how that can just be some kind of weird uh, force that helps you escape from things and a lot of the people uh, that I've talked to on here they've, they've found that the water is their escape and then they go find the beach they go find a lake that water just brings them some kind of like calmness but yeah forest same thing 
or out yeah. on the hikes, same exact concept, concept. They're out there. They just feel free. They can just relax. They can just forget our things. They can just be there and that makes us be present a little bit more. Um, so it's a, a massive thing that nature brings to us kind of thing with that kind of concept of staying mentally well. There's actually a, a Japanese term that I just learned recently. It's, it's Shinrin Yoku and it means forest bathing. And it's mm-hmm. sort of like connecting with nature and sort of like relieving your stress through nature. Um, and it's a really interesting concept. I, I want to read a little bit more about it, um, but it, it's a it's a real term that they utilize in Japan. And like it's something they push and, and build sort of mental health and wellness protocols around for for workplaces is like they try and incorporate trees and, and water features mm-hmm. into their buildings to try and and engage with people that way shinrin yoku yes i need to look that up and check that out i like that that's good um mate moving towards the uh, towards the end the tail end of the podcast i don't want to take you too long but i asked this question to most of the guys when they come on here and i want to know three massive things or influences in your life that have had a yeah like have have had a big influence on your career and on your journey to where you are now and these things can be as broad as you want them to be it could be family it could be courses it could be mentors it could be experiences it could be podcasts it could be a book uh but what what are three things that have, yeah had a massive influence on you mate yeah i i think number one is being a father um nice. yeah. and, and it, obvious for for reasons that you have more responsibility you you get to sort of watch someone grow and have a real like direct hand in, in growing them, which is always like stressful mm-hmm. um, and fun, but you don't realize how much you can love and how much you can care about something until like the second you see your first child. And from then on, you're like, Oh wow, I have a lot more life to give. I have a lot more heart to give. And so it's always been one where it's like, yeah, I can like, I can probably, give a little bit more of myself here because I know I've got it in there. Mm-hmm. And like, it's really funny. Like, I, I don't know if you've seen the movie, the Grinch where it talks about like his heart expands like three times its size. Well, the second I saw my children, it was like, Oh my gosh, like mm-hmm. I can literally feel it. And it just shows like, yeah, you can, you can really grow from that and you can really like, you can share more love in yourself with other people. Cause you know, you have it in you. Mm-hmm. Um, number two for me, a big influence that's impacted me both personally and work-wise, Dave Tenney is probably one of them for me, where like, he's just someone who I look at as a mentor, as like a a top practitioner in the world. Mm -hmm. But I also can look at him and say like, he's a friend, like I can sit down at a bar with him and not talk about sports science. And we can talk about everything else. And we have a great time. Or we can sit down and say, let's just like, we'll just talk about periodization today. And he'll talk about things that he wants to talk about. I'll talk about some of the experiences I have. And like, he's just someone that has expanded my, my viewpoint um, in a thousand different ways. And he's just an incredible person. And actually Jared Phillips also worked for him. And I think we have really similar viewpoints of he's, he's the master, Mm -hmm. Uh, especially here in the United States. Like he's sort of the, the godfather of sports science. Um, can't be dangerous um, and then I'm a huge reader Mm -hmm. and it's a little bit of everything 
So I don't think I could ever pick out one book, but I did a sort of a, a reading experiment that really helped me over the past year. I only read fiction for a year and it was really fun. I really, really enjoyed um, sort of taking a new perspective. Like reading wasn't work anymore. It was really fun. And mm -hmm. I found that now that I've sort of like lifted the, the barricades of like, now I can read whatever I want. It doesn't have to be fiction again. Mm -hmm. I enjoy all reading again. Like it, mm. it doesn't feel like work. I enjoy it. I'm taking things out of it. Um, and I also sort of like expanded my own like tastes in terms of books. Like I ended up taking recommendations from a lot of friends and they were books that were way outside of my realm. And I said, well, I, I need another book. It's time. I ran out of pages. Um, and some of the stuff that I ended up reading, I, I would never grab off the shelf myself. Mm -hmm. but because I, I ended up reading it, I've actually read like the sequels or the prequels and I really enjoyed it. So that process I think has prompted me to try it in other realms of my life with food, trying new foods, um, with different training regimes for myself or for, um, our athletes. Like it's just inspired me to be a little bit more explorative mm -hmm. and try new things, which I I've really enjoyed. How good. Oh, good man i like that um reading fiction for a year that sounds like a good challenge to do because I, I think i relate to that it's like reading can be a short time so just getting that spark and motivation back in some way is good yeah um, and i i don't like the like a book a month like it it just puts a quota on it yeah and for me, reading yeah, has that, always been like let's get away yeah. so now it's i didn't have a like i need to read 10 books it was no let's read let's just read something different and i ended mm -hmm. up reading a ton i think i I ended up reading like a book a month, mm -hmm. but it was just stuff that didn't feel like it was that hard. Like I ended for up enjoyment. books. Yeah. For enjoyment rather than for a chore. For sure. Yeah. I think it's such like a new year's Eve kind of resolution thing. Like oh, I'm going to read 300 books this year. Or I'm going to read whatever it is kind of thing and putting a number on it. And you don't get that number. Jeez. It just spikes. You're just like, Oh, I didn't do it. I'm a failure. and all that stuff. But if you find that spark, that oh, I want to read to enjoy. I want to work out differently to enjoy uh not i'm going to do a different workout every month yeah uh completely different focus on it for sure enjoying yeah. the process rather than enjoying the final goal and final number on it um what's uh what's next for you then my man um obviously leading into pre-season now for the guys or um towards the end of pre-season um or middle of pre-season correct me if i'm wrong uh but yeah, then we're, you, we're actually a week away from our first game we we play on saturday Crazy. Where's, where's the first game? Uh, we're here in Miami. We have our first two matches here, which is um, a little bit of pressure, but just because you always want to win your home matches, but mm -hmm. um, it'll be nice to being new in the club and being new in the city. It'll be cool to see the response from the city. And I know they're excited. I actually was at a, um, they hosted like a media event where the, the media members actually had to go through a little bit of a training session and then play a game um yesterday that i got to be a part of so um yeah, it should be fun nice and then what about yourself man obviously you got the phd gradually chipping away at that but what else is what's next for you yeah uh, right now i'm really excited about this project um i think in in philadelphia i had a club that was really supportive of me and the department and mm -hmm. i could have been there for another 10 years and we could have done really great things together um and really grown but what really inspired me 
to come here was it's an opportunity to sort of do it again and mm -hmm. restart it and learn from what I what I experienced in Philadelphia. So I'm really excited about sort of this process of growing this this club inner Miami into um something really big. And I, mm -hmm. I think there's some really neat like cultural differences between the clubs, good and bad, where um it'll just be a completely different process. But I think there will be there'll be parallel. Like mm -hmm. we'll see sort of an evolution in Miami the way that Philadelphia sort of panned out, but it sort of allows um it allows me to tinker and experiment and also justify some of my own processes and thought and philosophies and see if like they actually work. Mm -hmm. No, it sounds exciting. I got one more important question to ask for you, mate. Um, maybe the most important of all. What's uh what's dealing with Phil Neville like? Oh, he is class. He is absolutely <laughs> wonderful. Um I think the best way to put it is like, and it, it's the same for all of us. There's sort of like the persona that you allow the outside world to see. Mm -hmm. And in our world, you have to be sort of guarded. You have to be sort of like, you have to be a little more black and white. But Phil Neville is just the kindest human being I have I have dealt with in this world. And mm -hmm. the perfect example is um, when I took the job, um, I was really nervous because number one I, I knew i had to go away at some point for my phd but most importantly um my my daughter was due smack dab in the middle of preseason and i didn't tell phil right away after i took the job i sort of like let it simmer and i actually mm. the sporting director told phil like you know garrison's wife is expecting right and mm. he called me and goes gee like why didn't you tell me like mm. I want to make sure that we're together on this. I want to make sure that like, you know, that like family comes first and everyone says that, but Phil Neville like lives it means it yeah. to the point where like leading into the trip, I had scheduled my flight for like a week before the baby was doing. He's like, no, 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 get home, support your wife, like be there, be there at least 10 days before the baby's born. So I rescheduled my flight and then I was going to come back early February because there was a trip with the team and I wanted to be a part of it for the social aspect. And he goes, no, 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 no. If I see you within two weeks of the baby being born, you're fired. Like your family is more important than anything in here. Mm -hmm. He's just been so accommodating. So not only does he say family first, but he also like lives it and pushes it. And it, he's just an incredible human being. Nice. Nice. I think that's huge. What you said as well before uh, about having the perspective of other other people outside the club or what is portrayed on socials or on, on in media, and then you have to come in with a blank slate, um, working alongside them. So I think that's some something that a lot of people coming into the industry can really learn a lot from. So yeah, nice. It also nice. makes working for someone like that really easy. Mm -hmm. Like. You sort of get like, I didn't know what to expect coming in because social media and and just listening to interviews as I was sort of going through the interview process myself, like um, I think he makes really good points and just sometimes like they don't come off exactly how he means it. But then when you actually interact with him on a day to day basis, like he's high energy, he's really fun, but he, he cares about every single person in the building and it's mm -hmm. really like it's really hard to let down a guy like that. Like you want to, 
you want to do well for him. Yeah, want to fight for him. It's great. Good on, good on you. Uh, where's the best way to reach out to you, mate? If people want to get in contact with you after listening to this, yeah, um, email is always the easiest. That's that's constantly the one, and and sort of like alleviates the time zone issues um, for all of our international friends. So my email, my inner Miami email is garrison.draper at innermiamicf.com. Done. I'll put that on the show notes for sure, man. Great. Um, but all in all, we've come to the end of the podcast and I really do appreciate you um, hanging around a little bit longer than I was uh, asking you originally for, but thank you uh, nonetheless. Uh, all the best for the rest of the preseason. All the best for what's coming up for your um, uh, your your project as well and your new, your new project at the club too with your first season at moment. So all the best. Uh, hang around for a second. We'll have a bit of a chat, but apart from that, man, yeah, thank you. Great. Thanks, Sam. So thanks to Garrison for jumping on this episode of the podcast and sharing all his insights from his experiences in the MLS and in the football industry and and his experiences in the past, uh, transitioning from one one career goal to the next and having that realization and uh, having it at such a young age, I think is very very valuable to be having that uh, insight and to have that kind of realization. And I think a lot of people that are seeking careers who are listening to this. Uh, they're just not sure about um, sometimes they need that kind of kick to be able to take that transition or take that curve or like get a curveball thrown at them so they can go down the direction that they're really really passionate about so um, thank you very much again Garrison and thank you to Stance for providing the music for this episode and also to Team Builder for being the sponsor of this episode uh, thank you very much for listening again if you uh, feel like this episode has triggered you in any way or you feel like you relate in any way please don't uh, hesitate to reach out to myself or to Garrison. Uh, he's provided his contact details, which is very generous, and we're always happy to have a chat. So, as always, thank you very much. Until the next episode.